0: Psalm ten this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, the, the entire text is there in the bulletin, so you can follow there in, uh, in Psalm ten. And again, if you're visiting, great to have you here. And uh, this is a summer series that we're looking at different psalms from Scripture. Some of these are around. 3,000 years old. There's one by Moses that's even older than that and uh, some might be a little younger than that, but they're they're very old, very ancient. And there are 150 of them in this collection called the Psalter in the Bible and they hit all these different levels of experience of uh, what God's people are going through and, and they're given to us as words for all kinds of different situations because... The, the life of belief is not always going to be just the heights of joy and happiness. And it's not always going to be the trough of, of despair. And there's going to be in between. And, and you really get all that in the Psalms. And this is an unusual one this morning, at least in, in our setting, Psalm 10. One of the, uh, what you might call, sort of classic stumbling blocks for belief in the God of the Bible is, is the extent of evil and suffering in the world. And, and and it's appropriate for people to ask these kinds of questions. The, the way this uh, the way this you might say stumbling point usually goes. The way it might be expressed is: okay, the God of the Bible is presented as being all powerful, and the God of the Bible is presented as being all love. And I mean, just look at the news. I and mean, we're not just talking about local crime or break-ins or a, you know random murder over here, but we're talking about stuff like. Genocide, and dictatorships, and oppressive regimes, and uh, widespread slavery, uh, terrible, terrible crimes against humanity. And it's, just, it's on a global scale. It's not unique to any one country or any one people group. So what's the deal? Because it seems like either God has the love to stop that, but He lacks the power. Or, flip it around, God has the power, but He lacks the love to stop it. But it seems like if God really is the the way you find Him, presented in the Bible, then, you know, the the news channels can't look like this. The newspaper can't read this way. Classic objection. Now, first off, let me say this. Uh, You know, if you have those questions, my hope is that you're going to keep coming, that this won't be just a flash in the pan. And I hope this can at least be a step in thinking about that and engaging that. But sometimes we, we feel as if we are the first people to raise those questions. And those questions are extremely old. And they've been on other continents before they reach this one. This psalm begins with the question, why? Why in the world, God, is this going on if you are who you say you are? Very honest. But I want you to think about this. And this, we said something like this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at a very sad psalm is that raising these questions for the psalmist is not a break from worship. That looking at a world with oppression and violence and injustice and affliction becomes an opportunity to write a God song. And the psalms are theological, but they're not theological treatises. They are songs Seeing these things in the real world becomes an opportunity to worship God. And and a psalm is provided for God's people to worship God, recognizing this is what the world really is like. Whether we are directly touched by it where we live or not. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes... He puffs at them. He says in his heart, "...I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity." His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless." He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from His land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask all the more that if you have been so merciful as to ha- let us have a life where we're not in crushing poverty and we have resources to help us and we have resources to find justice, if it's been uh, our blessing from you uh, not to experience murder directly or abduction or this kind of cruelty. Would you enable us to hear this the way we still need to? Father, we ask that we won't be detached observers, but we will hear this as part of God's people around the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's uh, There's a theologian up at Yale University. In fact, uh, one of our church members, they just had a newborn. I don't see him here, but he got to study under this theologian. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf, which for some reason Facebook told me I needed to be, to be friends with this week. And that's another thought. Uh, we have 38 mutual friends, apparently, Miroslav Volf and I. And I don't even know what to think about that. But, uh, but Miroslav Volf is not from the United States. I believe he's from Eastern Europe. And so, uh, some of these things that you hear about, like in the Balkans and, and uh, Croatia, he, he, he has seen this directly in his own background, but he now studies and writes and teaches in the United States at Yale. And uh, Miroslav Wolf wrote a book, and he, he touched on a subject, and, and this, is, this is kind of wordy, it's kind of academic, but I, I'm still going to risk it and read just this small part to get a point across, okay? He's talking about that his thesis is that we are not, that human beings are not, especially those who believe in God, are not to engage in violence. Now, my point is not to try to push his view on you or... uh, And if if he means straight up pacifism, there would be things I'd want to challenge. But he says this, the reason that uh, God's people are not to engage in violence is because... God is going to is going to dispense uh, a divine vengeance at the end. He said this. He said he knows this from experience. He said, when I, this is from a book of his. He said, when I first gave a lecture which formed this chapter that I'm writing, I gave it in a war-torn area. And I believe he's talking about Croatia. Here's what he says. He says, I suggest imagining that you, you the listener, that you're delivering a lecture about these things in a war zone. He says, and that when I first gave this lecture that I'm writing about, it was in a war zone. He says this, among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit." And the topic of the lecture is a Christian attitude toward violence. And here's what he says. If you speak in a setting like that, do not go over here anymore. All right. If you speak in a setting like that, and you stand up in front of people and say, you know what, none of us should ever engage in human violence because you know why? Because God is perfect love, and He will never engage in violence. He said that people who have lived through that, they would stare at you like you are crazy. And he, and he makes a very convicting statement. He says, you have to live in the comforts, uh, comforts of the suburbs to get comfortable with the thesis that God will never, ever dispense divine justice. The only people that really, really can settle into that are people with comfortable lives, who have never seen massive devastation and massive cruelty and their own flesh and blood ravaged and raped and murdered. So when you've tasted that, the thesis that, hey, you don't go out and pursue vengeance because God will give vengeance one day, which by the way, the Bible does explicitly say that. If you've tasted it directly, that rings true. And, And you know, in in getting ready for this sermon, I I thought about that quote. I know it's kind of booky and I know it's kind of academic, but he put his finger on something about us. Um, I referred to this in the prayer. Two days ago, National Public Radio did a brief little spot about our downtown in Falls Park and how the economy is going in Greenville. Overall, very complimentary, very positive. I mean, that's our city, guys. That's our city. It's our downtown. It's the focus of our church. Uh, This month, I've had a bunch of people tell me, have you seen this magazine, Garden and Gun? And then Dana and I were on a date last night. We tried to buy a copy of it at Barnes & Noble, and uh, they said, oh, no, we got pounded. Those were wiped out like the first couple of days we had them. But apparently, this beautiful spread about Greenville, you know, the word is out about Greenville. It is a privilege to get to live where we live. The downside is that we can read a part of God's Word like this, and it just doesn't even feel real. And some of you have traveled enough that you've had taste of this. You've seen some of these things up close and personal. Or it may be that you work in aspects of Greenville where you see that not everything is kind of the hunky-dory Chamber of Commerce, put this in a catalog picture about Greenville world. You know some of the underbelly of our city. So it resonates a little bit more. But overall, we're going to be the people who are not good at getting Psalm 10. And... That dehumanizes us. Because we have brothers and sisters all around the world who live in this. Their lives are parked in this. And I guarantee you, if they have had any time around a Bible in their own language, they have found Psalm 10. But it's largely foreign to us. Now, here's what I want to look at this morning. You really have three main characters in this psalm. You've got a victimizer... Or we might say a predator. You've got a victim, the prey, and you've got God. So you've got, you know, man's inhumanity to man. You've got humanity and you've got God. Let's look at those. What, what are we seeing in this psalm? Because the psalmist is not dressing things up at all. He's not playing, you know, church games. He's saying, this is what I'm seeing, God, and I'm asking you right out of the chute. The first question is, Why? What is the deal? All right. What do, what do we find out about the victim? And here's the thing. This is written about a fairly specific situation. It's not just written about human violence in general. Or it's not written about uh, violent times of warfare. It's not really even about a dictator or a ruler. It's something much more specific, much more local. Or even regional. All right. What is the victim like? The word that it keeps using about him and this is a categorical term, is the wicked. It says this four times in the psalm. He is the wicked. And as we've talked about in this series, when you see that word in the psalms, that's not saying, look, I'm in this group called the righteous, and we never do anything wrong. And then there are these horrible people called the wicked, and they always do everything wrong. They can't do anything right. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this is a categorical divide in humanity. There are the righteous. Do the righteous always do what is right? No. They are the ones who know the God who is righteous. They follow in His way. And they do love righteousness. The wicked reject Him. They take their own way. They forsake righteousness. It's a categorical term. Essentially, believers and non-believers. This guy is a non-believer. And in the psalm, there's a tension. He he acts as if he is an atheist. Did you catch that? says, there's no God. There's no God that's going to call me to a- account. But the thing is, he's almost betraying himself because if there's no God, why do you keep talking to him? If there's no God, why do you keep referring to him? If there is no God in the universe, why do you keep saying, oh, God's not even going to see this. In fact, yeah, God's not seeing this. I'm getting away with it. it he's a practical atheist. He, Whether or not he really believes it, he's living as if there is no God and there's never going to be a judgment. Now, a couple of other things about him. These sound like contradictions, but they're both there. The first is this. He's arrogant. He's very arrogant. Start in verse 3. Actually, in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 3. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Verse 4. In the pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. Uh, Verse 6, very cocky. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Very arrogant. And it says that he's prospering. The wicked things that he's doing are making a lot of money for him. He's arrogant, but he's also sneaky. So he's not a cocky person doing this in front of everybody. He is arrogant, but he's subverting the system. And you get words like schemes and deceit. And it talks about him doing things stealthily, you know, with stealth, that he lurks, all right? Arrogant, but subverting the system, doing things behind closed doors. Now, that's, that's the victimizer. That's the predator. What's the victim like? What's the prey like? The word that she used the most to describe him, it's in verse 8, it's in verse 10. in verse 14. And if you'll stop and think about it, it's very sad. He's helpless. Or she's helpless. Uh, There there are times where we feel helpless, but, but honestly, it's hard to imagine a situation where we can't find some manifestation of help. But the psalmist is saying the plight... Of this woman or child or man is that they are helpless. And then it unpacks some of these things you'd expect it to hear. This is the poor, this is the afflicted, uh, this is the oppressed. And then the psalmist even throws in a couple of other terms that lead you to believe that he may th- be thinking specifically of children. So he talks about the innocent. He talks about the fatherless. That they're the ones that this victimizer is singling out, and he's coming up with plans, and he's kind of luring them into a net. And once they're in the net, he just crushes them and uses them, and sometimes even murders them. Now, we don't know the exact life setting of what made the psalmist write Psalm 10, but in our cultural setting, what does Psalm 10 make you think of? And overwhelmingly, just as I reflected on it and read it, what, what comes to mind more than anything is human trafficking. Uh, can I read you some statistics that are not fun? Um, these are recent. I, I, I think any figure you hear, if it's changed, it has gone up. All right, here's a few. First, just about the world in general. Um, Human trafficking is the second largest criminal uh, enterprise in the world after drugs. Number two, it is agreed on almost every front that there are more slaves in the world right now than there were at the height of the transatlantic slave trade in the 19th century. Whenever it peaked out, however many total slaves in the boats, on the plantations, in the factories, wherever, at the height of that, there are more slaves right now around the world. 800,000 people are bought and sold across international borders each year. 800,000. In the U.S., uh, as many as 2.8 million children run away each year in the U.S., And I saw this figure over and over and over. Within 48 hours of hitting the streets, one-third of these children are lured. And do you hear that term? Are lured or recruited into the underworld ground of prostitution and pornography. The average age of entry for children victimized by the sex trade industry is 12. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which helps to identify and locate children in pornography, uh, uh, pornographic photos and videos, say its staff reviewed in 2009 alone 10.5 million images. Um, That's overwhelming. That is overwhelming. And it, it leaves you not knowing what to do. And I think because if we stop and think for a moment, you know that, like, I individually cannot fix that, but something's got to be done. Here's the question. What is it we want done? You know, uh, Dana and I, when we were on vacation, uh, we we watched a movie called Taken. Liam Neeson is in this movie, and Liam Neeson's character, his daughter is abducted along with a friend of hers in Europe. and, And it gives this depiction of the sex trafficking industry and the underworld and all that. And, you know, Liam Neeson flies over by himself and kills like one-fourth of Europe. (laughs) And, you know, under the circumstances, you're kind of going, yeah, i got no problem with that. But, I mean, what is it when we think something's got to be done, what is it that we want done? And I found myself saying, I mean, I feel that. Something's got to be done. What is it I want done? Or if we we think God needs to do something about this. Now, this gets back to the objection. If God is the God of the Bible, all-powerful and all-loving, He's got to do something. What is it that we envision Him doing? Is it that every human trafficker, whether it's for slave labor or sex or whatever, that they just drop dead in the streets, struck down by the wrath of God? Okay, if that happened today, what then would happen? What would happen? An entire new generation of traffickers and pimps would emerge. If there are entire regions of the world where the dynamics of sexuality and the dynamics of labor, supply and demand require it, a whole new generation would be raised up. Why? Because these problems are in the heart. And we show up with them. You know, it's not just, let's get enough snipers enough undercover agents, and we'll just take care of this. It can't work that way. But that still leaves us going, well, okay, all right, it won't work that way. But God is God. Let's get back to that. He's got all the power, and He's supposed to be loving, and He's got all the wisdom. Why can't He do something? And where that may leave us is to say, well, you know what? If there's that kind of trafficking, especially of women and children, especially the children who are helpless because it's overwhelmingly impoverished children, then I don't know that I can believe in God because there cannot be a good reason for that. Now, once we say that, we've got a couple of problems. I'm not going to say problems. I'm going to say there's some things we need to stop and think about. Number one, logically that does not check out. Even philosophers who really don't have a dog in the fight of Bible-believing Christianity are more and more acknowledging that, that if you, take, if you take the assumptions of theism, it does not check out to say, there can't be a good reason for those things to go on, and because I cannot determine it, it cannot exist. We are finite. God is infinite. And sitting here right now, I mean, I want to stand before you and say, no, I cannot imagine any reason why God would allow it. And I'm riddled with sin. I see through a glass dimly. I have a profound lack of wisdom. Some of you have been through horrible things in your life. And as you were going through it, perhaps you were saying, how could God be loving and let me feel what I'm feeling right now? And then you got years removed from it and you look back on it and say, I could not have learned certain things. Or I could not possess certain things. I don't mean stuff. I mean change and wisdom. Had I not gone through that. But in the moment, it felt like, God, you don't know what you're doing. It just does not check out logically to say, I can't see the reason, so there is no reason. But here's the other thing. Are we more loving than God? And of course we want to go, up. Uh, no. But, you know, I wonder. If deep down we feel like, well, look, I'm watching Fox News and I'm seeing the footage of this widespread devastation and it made me cry. And he's not doing anything. I saw the movie Taken with my friends and I couldn't even sleep that night. And he's not doing anything. And it's as if to say, you know, God, you're on the hook. Okay, God is never on the hook if we put him on the hook, you know what's the only way God is on the hook? Is if God puts God on the hook. And you know what the gospel is? He did. Now, if, if this is new to you, I hope you're going to keep coming because we're kind of going zero to 60 here. But here's what I want to say The God of the Bible, the God the psalmist is talking to in Psalm 10, He became the poor. He became the oppressed. He became the afflicted. And when he most needed help, what was there? None. No resources, no assistance. And I would never debate the fact that some of you in your lives, you have rubbed up against real injustice. You might have had somebody just breach a contract, and you ended up getting all the problems or... Uh, you went through a divorce and you were dealt with in a very unjust way. That, that, that's in this room. But even if you've experienced that, I doubt that any of us could really know what it was like to be a poor Jew in the first century Roman Empire. Oh, but hey, here's the good news. There's, there's a group of people who will advocate for you. There's a ruling council that will represent your interests. It's the Sanhedrin. Oh, wait, uh, they hated Jesus. And you remember the thing about, you know, the scheming and the plotting and the deceit and the lurking? Guess who was doing that? Why is God putting himself on the hook to absorb all those things? The only way to fix this level of violence and abduction and oppression and rape and murder and slavery is not just to fix individuals, although God does that. But it is to come to grips with the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, the earth became cursed. And the only way to fix this thing is to take the whole curse on Himself. And when He is up on that cross, and He's poor, and He's afflicted, and He's oppressed... And they have ganged up on him and been cruel to him. He is absorbing the curse. So that it won't always be this way. Let's talk about God. Let's end with God. Let's give some good news. You know, the psalmist... This is interesting. The psalmist talks about God differently than, than the predator. When the predator talks about God, he calls him God. Just kind of generic, God. God doesn't see. God will not call to account. When the psalmist talks about God, did you notice it's all caps, L-O-R-D? And in the English translations, that's his personal name. And the psalmist, even though he's beginning with why, he's doing it reverently. And he's saying, Yahweh, why? Why are you standing far off? That's not who you are. Why are you letting these things happen? That's not who you are. But he starts that way in verse 6. Where does he get? Verse 16. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Now, that's all through the Bible. But if that leaves us saying, well then why does the world not look that way? Why doesn't it show itself that he's king? When you talk about the kingdom of God, there's something, and this comes up in sermons, so here it comes again. We talk about, when it comes to the kingdom, you got to remember, there's the already and the, you know what it is? The not yet. There's the already and the not yet. What does the psalmist say about the already? Look in the second part of verse 14. He says, To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. There are things that God has done behind the scenes. His involvement in the lives of people who are being crushed that we never see and that we do not know about, but that they could attest to, and they do. And he says that in other places. You do hear. You know, it look when God's people were in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years and they're just getting the shaft. There are all these promises about you're gonna be blessed, and you're the children of Abraham, and you're gonna have this great land, and they're in their what, third, fourth century of horrible labor. It looks like, wow, God, God's standing far off. God's not helping. And it says, all through that, God, He heard everything. He took note of everything. He remembered everything. And then He dealt with it. In His time and in His way. And that's the not yet. Th- there is a phrase in the psalm that the more I thought about it, it just almost makes chills run down your spine. And it, it sounds innocuous until you think about what it means. Look in verse 14, the first part. Again, this sounds very innocuous. He says, God, Lord, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. Did you get that? You note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. There was a top secret, I don't know if you'd call it a unit, or, well, let's let's say a group, in Vietnam... Uh, part of our American military. And it, it, was, it, it went by the abbreviation SOG. And what that stood for was Studies and Operations Group. And the Studies and Operations Group, a lot of what these guys did wasn't even made public till the 80s. They went further into enemy territory than anybody. And they did stuff that was unbelievable. One guy that was in SOG was from Greenville won the Congressional Medal of Honor. But you think about that name, the Studies and Operations Group. That just sounds so... That could be like a group that studies wildlife along the Reedy River. Just just the Studies and Observations Group. All right, then you read about what these guys did. You would never want this group to study you or be observing you, ever. And I thought about this... I, I mean... In some ways, I'm rejoicing in this and who God is, but I don't want to be flippant. We're looking at these things that thankfully are not happening on a huge scale in our city, but they they are in our city and they're in our world. And we're going, God, handle it. And verse 14 says, oh, don't worry, because He notes every act of mischief, everything that vexes... He notes every act of violence and affliction. He notes every helpless person. And then finally, and this is incredible, he takes it into his hands. That if we're saying, God, handle this, literally at the end he does. And when we see an almighty God handle evil, it will cause us to stand in awe. It says in the New Testament, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if we are feeling like, who is ever going to know about, I don't know, like a little, poor, Cambodian female orphan who's trafficked when she's eight, and, I mean, she doesn't have any public records, she doesn't have any family to take care of her, her life ends up being horrible. Maybe she's killed at the age of 20. Who's ever going to deal with that? And Psalm 10 says, "God has all that, named and understood and seen and retained. And at the end, He takes all of it in his hands, and he meets out justice. What does that mean for us? Well, I want to end with a couple of things. One is that we begin to think about the fact that this is part of our world. In 2000, according to Greenville News, the first case of human uh, slave labor trafficking was found in Greenville County in 2000, but there have been more since. We are supposed to think of that as being part of our Christian life. Now, what that's going to mean for you you're going to have to pray for wisdom. Should everybody quit their job and work full time for addressing human trafficking? I don't think everybody, no. But is that supposed to at least be on our radar? Yes. One of the things that God says in the New Testament, pure and undefiled religion is this, it is caring for whom? The people getting the shaft. Widows and orphans, what, the affluent ones that we happen to like? No. In their distress. And here's the reality. If those names of oppressed, afflicted, widow, fatherless, if they are not precious to us, then there is a way that we have not been conformed to what God is like because they are precious to Him. And that is not an ideological thing. That is not a political viewpoint. That is the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. But I don't know what to do. And I think that's the second thing. And I'm going to end with this. My first year here as a pastor at downtown Prez, I preached a sermon that in my memory, if there's one sermon that I preached and I've, I've never seen faces look back at me, more so like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've certainly... Yeah, I mean, there's some of those all the time. but, But... A sermon that that I preached where I felt like this is not landing. I I just feel like I could be speaking in, in Hebrew right now. It was a sermon on Luke chapter 18. It's the parable of the persistent widow. It's a widow who's not getting justice. She's oppressed. She comes to a judge. The judge doesn't like God. The judge doesn't fear God. He doesn't like widows. He's not predisposed to help widows. But she just stays on him till he finally says, To make this woman stop, I'll give her justice. Enough already. And Jesus says, If God's elect, if his people, cry out to him for justice, will he not answer? And brothers and sisters, when we watch the news and we see these horrible images and we say, what do you do about Sudan? What do you do about slave trafficking and sex trafficking? I don't, I don't know what to do. I have this job here and I've got another calling. I don't know what to do. To follow Jesus and to believe the gospel means that a very logical application of that is to get on our knees and pray. And if you don't know how to do it, Psalm 10 is how to do it. That we've been given the words to go to bat for our world. If this doesn't land with you, would you ask God to open your heart to consider how, if I don't know anyone with this kind of life, and I don't have this kind of life, And this doesn't really resonate with me, is for him to show you from his word how he loves the poor, the afflicted, the oppressed, the widow, the fatherless. So much so that he put himself on the hook to bear the curse so that the new earth won't have any of those things forever. Ask him to make that real to us. Let's pray together. Dear Father, help us. So much of this seems detached. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that if we're not swimming in injustice, if there's not a cruel person trying to victimize us, if there's not someone um, who might murder us at any moment, who's plotting to take us, lure us into his net, we thank you. Please keep us safe. Please keep those we love safe. But Oh, Lord, this is our world. Precious Jesus, we praise You that You became like the least of these to bear the curse that You wore, not a crown that You deserve, but You wore a crown of those thorns. Thorns from a curse that we might bear it no more. And we thank You in Your name. Amen.